This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Brownman, baseball's top priority. The gate revenue and, and a salary cap, it doesn't matter if they can't figure out the health issues. That has to be paramount. The dispute between owners and players and the potential damage. This is not going to go well for either side. You don't want this thing to be really unseemly and played out. It would not be a good thing for baseball. And from a legendary broadcast pedigree, Braves announcer Chip Carey. My dad and my grandfather, uh, one's in the Hall of Fame, one should be. Finding your own way and finding out who you are as opposed to being a cheap imitation of other people who are not only in your family but in the same business and in my case in the same broadcast booth was a bit of a challenge. But they encouraged me to be myself. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Broman. Put on my PJs and hop into we welcome you to the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Brownman, and we continue to adhere to social distancing. In the case of me and Julie, we like to, be, I mean, we really want to take this to an extreme. So we remain 20 miles apart. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to lie. Usually you, you come over here to my palatial place and we do it in my bedroom studio. I'm in my pajamas right now, laying in bed with my hair in a bun. Not that, you know, I mean, that's appealing, but I really like the social distancing thing. <laughs> I don't know where to take that. So I'm just <laughs> going to move on from there. It's fine. Especially since you said it was appealing. And I'm sure, I'm sure. No, it would. it's probably not appealing. But anyway. Oh, well, no, no. You know, end of the day, you should be in your in your PJs. And yeah. I'm glad you're able to do the show from um, not only your bedroom now, but literally from your bed. <laughs> I know. Just- which is just perfect. Yeah. I know the whole world, the whole sports world, the whole country's talked about the Michael Jordan thing. You and I haven't really touched much on that. I will just say this. Even if we weren't in a pandemic, I find it fascinating because if there's one athlete that stood above all others, and John Elway was great, and Tom Brady's great, and Peyton Manning's great in, in football, and you can look at every sport, right? There was always something different about that cat and now we're getting an inside look, and I find it riveting. Yeah, I think, I guess maybe people in sports knew how competitive he was. If you covered him, you know how competitive. But now I think, first of all, I think it's an amazing production, the way that they did it. Um, but you really learn, some people knew that about him. I mean, he was a he's a tough cat for sure, and, and competitive, and there's, he's, Something that that absolutely separates Michael Jordan from most other athletes. I mean, there's a very, 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 he's on a level of very, very few men that have ever played sports. And yeah, I mean, even it's, it's a beautiful watch, right? Um, Right. You think you know a lot about him, but you, you definitely learn a lot about him, but it's beautifully produced and God, thank God we have this during this time, right? To kind of get into and, and have a chance to talk about. Julie, I've always said this, that whether you are looking at little leaguers play or middle school athletes or high school athletes or collegiate athletes, even at the highest level, there are different levels of work hard, work ethic, competitiveness. So those guys are the best players in the world, right? And yeah, the Chicago I mean, Bulls were world champions. And Michael Jordan's level of competitiveness, forget his talent level, obviously that was you know better than everybody's also, but his level of competitiveness and his work ethic were different even among great, great world-class basketball players. He's And he's kind of a jerk about it too. That also separates him from, I mean, he didn't care. He doesn't really care who he was friends with, if he pissed off teammates. That's how badly he wanted to win, right? I mean, kind of at, at all costs. And yeah, so that's been um, that's been a good watch. I really, though, want to talk to you about, because there is some kind of baseball news this week, especially. I think it's going to be a really, really interesting week for baseball fans. And we'll just start off with our What's Hot segment. So Major League Baseball has a proposal that they've talked about on, so we're taping this on Wednesday. They talked about it on Tuesday. Now we're, it's been leaked to the press. We hear a lot about what was in that proposal. They did not talk about money and they will get to the money, which we'll talk about the, the meeting on Tuesday between the union and major league baseball was a lot about the health issues and how they're going to move forward with those health issues. And I'm kind of glad 
it started off with that because it has to start off with that, right? You're not going to, this whole revenue, the gate revenue and, and a salary cap, it doesn't matter if they can't figure out the health issues, correct? Yeah, that, that, that has to be paramount. But And they, I think, will work those things out. They have to have a, a great plan in place, one that has approval. And they have been talking throughout with conduits to the CDC, from what I understand, and governors. They've had conversations uh, with, with many governors in states where there is Major League Baseball. So they, they couldn't come to the Players Association unless they had a coherent plan in place. But the, the news out of these meetings that is getting the greatest attention. Well, I haven't talked about it yet. So that's yeah. my point is that, we'll, and they'll get there. This week is going to be a really interesting week in baseball. I guess my point is that they haven't gotten there. By the time this podcast comes out, it may get there. It's going to come out, though, what you're getting to is that it really is going to come out to the money, which I think the players thought, well, they, we had an agreement in March in March about we're going to have be paid like being prorated by every game that we play. And now Major League Baseball is saying, well, if we're not going to have fans, which is part of this proposal for these games, which is going to be 82 games, an 82 game season. There's going to be no fans there. That means that there's no revenue from the gate. And Major League Baseball is saying we get 40 percent of what we make from the gate and concessions and all that. So they're going to want to go back and they're going to want to renegotiate. And that's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem in the court of public opinion because whenever, even in normal times, when millionaires and billionaires bicker, there aren't many people on the sidelines, i.e. the fans, who are very forgiving, understanding, etc. In these times, where you're talking about an unemployment rate that is the highest it's been since the Depression, and the overall number of people unemployed is higher than at any point in the history of our country, this is not going to go well for either side. And people typically reside with owners because they'll say, well, players are making millions of dollars and and you know, how dare they, you know, go out on strike potentially or not have a season when I don't have a job and I don't make, you know, one two hundredth of what those guys make on average. They have to find an agreement. I I think they will find an agreement, uh, but you don't want this thing to be really unseemly and played out publicly over the next, you know, couple of weeks, Julie. It, It would it would not be a good thing for baseball, which has a great opportunity, as you and I have talked about, to really, you know, rekindle some fire in the game and make people feel good in the evenings uh, during a very dark period. It's going to be, baseball has a chance to kind of be a hero, to be the first sport back. And they're talking about part of this proposal is a so-called spring training that begins 2.0, right? Because there's already been a spring training, begins in June with a season set for early July. So they can be, doesn't sound right now that basketball is coming back anytime soon or hockey's coming back anytime soon. And baseball is America's pastime, right? How amazing would it be to, in a couple months, have baseball to talk about again? But I think it is going to get ugly because it's so, uh, base, the union is so against a salary cap and they look at a revenue share as a salary cap. And I think owners are going to dig their heels in because they're going to lose so much money at the gate. So I want, I want, we all love Chris Iannetta when he was here. So he's with the Yankees now and he, he talked to ESPN last week. And I want to read this quote to you. I'm just curious what you think about it. He said, there's an intrinsic, intrinsic risk that players are going to undertake if there are fanless games. And because of that, players should be fairly compensated for taking that risk for the betterment of the game and the betterment of the owners who stand to make a huge profit off the game. That quote, it didn't hit me right. And I really like Chris. Um, There's an intrinsic, I can't say that word, intrinsic risk. Intrinsic. Difficulty today. Yeah, we're all taking, Drew. I take it every day at my job. I don't expect my employers to pay me any more money. My neighbors take it every day. You take it every day. We're all, this is a world where we're all taking risks. And this quote, baseball players are going to benefit from that. 
I think I think I think the players also have to understand, Julie, that this is one year. This is an aberration. We keep discussing this. Nothing about 2020 is going to be the same, hopefully, in 2021 going forward. And that is the last year uh, of the CBA. Right. What people will not stand for is another work stoppage as they, you know, they went through the 90s. Think of the 94 season where there was no World Series. And right. there, there were, it seemed like every other year there was some sort of strike. And the Players Association in baseball has always been the strongest union. I know in their last CBA, they feel like they got the the poor end of the deal, mm-hmm. if you could describe it that way. But these are not the times to they can they can stand their ground and and they should be heard and there has to be a negotiation. It should not be played out publicly. No information from those closed door meetings should be leaked out because if they are leaked out there's a purpose behind it it's it seems to me that there was a purpose behind the leakage evidently that the owners were going to go back and ask for a a revenue split so this is so tony clark is the player association executive director and i just feel just reading about what a player's saying and what he's saying that we're kind of headed it's going to be contentious i think it's going to get worked out but he said, he said the, the league is trying to take advantage of a global health crisis to get what they failed to achieve in the past, which is salary cap, um, anonymously negotiate through the media for the last several days, and it, it suggests they know exactly how this will be received. And he's right. Because I think if the public hears, wait a second, if if the sport can come back, and it's been cleared health-wise, even without fans, but the players are saying no to that because they... I think people are going to hear that if, if the owners want a 50-50 split because they can't get any from the gate, I think most people are going to go, well, yeah, that makes sense, right? Most people generally, I said it earlier, Julie, will side with the owners because they'll say, well, the owners, you know, it, it's one versus the players. The players have a face. Most of the time, the owners uh, don't have a face and they say, well, okay, well, that's you know, that's the boss. That's the head, you know, that's, you know, I work for a company and this is my salary and, you know, it's kind of take it or leave it, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So usually again, in the court of public opinion, people are going to fall on the side of the owners. The owners are making the presentation and the players are going to have the audacity. Again, this is what people are going to think. Not to accept that when I when I'm unemployed, when I've lost my job, when I'm trying to be able to put a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the table uh, for my family uh, tonight, so that's why I understand what Tony Clark's saying that because of this worldwide pandemic, the owners are in some way, shape, or form trying to take advantage. I I, I really really hope that this does not play out publicly that we really don't read much about it over the next few days and they come to a closed door agreement Mm -hmm. because if there is posturing that is played out publicly that you read about and there are sound bites and uh, social media involvement, it, it, it it hurts the game. It hurts the game tremendously. And I remember back Julie in the nineties when there were frequent work stoppages you had people who said, I'm done. I'm never coming back to baseball. And I'm sure some did, but I'm sure some did not. And it took a while to recover. It quite frankly took that great home run chase between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire to really generate great interest uh, in the game again. The game and the sport has recovered 17 years of increased revenue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You cannot take a backward step. And as you have have put it eloquently on a couple of occasions, they have a grand opportunity to be the first sport back and to take advantage of that. Oh, totally. Well, okay. Putting, you know, maybe what's going to be a contentious week aside, other things in this proposal are kind of interesting. Um, The expansion of playoff teams from 10 to 14, again, 82 games this season, the use of home stadiums that have local and state government approval. If not, then they'd have to take that team and go to another city. Again, starting spring training begins in June, early July for starting a universal designated hitter, which we had talked about before. 
that we are both we both would like to see, and that's in the proposal to the players. Yeah, and I think that's been approved or, or it agreed upon, and that wasn't going to be uh, an issue that that drew the ire of no. of you know either side. The players want that because DH is a higher paid position. And going forward, that means that that some other player will make a larger salary typically than they would have if they were just the 25th man on, on a National League um, club. One thing that that needs to be understood. So the it was floated that they're looking at an 82 game season. If you are paid by the game, if it's prorated as what was agreed upon in March, mm-hmm. it behooves both the players and owners to play as many games as possible. And if you do get started in July and play through October, that's 125 days. They're going to play double headers. You need some days off. There's no reason they couldn't play in the in the neighborhood of 120. But that's, now, that's one not thing, floated out. It's always been 82, which is, I, I don't know why. You're right. I mean, you make more TV money, right? Well, what what the owners, what the owners I, I think it's a negotiating ploy, honestly, mm-hmm. because then they can go back and say, okay, we'll give a little bit on the game. There, It's far more lucrative. The, the national television money becomes really lucrative when you get to the postseason. And if you can expand from 10 to 14 teams, that means there are far more postseason games that are on national television. And that's where the you know this larger pot of gold is. They don't want to, understandably, when I say they, the owners, do anything to risk that if there was a second wave of the virus that came as the winter began and all of a sudden you're still playing in November and it had to get shut down and you don't get to uh, employ that bigger pot of gold, that is a concern. I think that's why they've arrived at that 82-game number. But I would think if I'm a player, I want to negotiate that because if I can make 60 or, or 70% of my salary as opposed to just 50%, uh, I, I'm going to lean in that direction. So I, we haven't been able to say this for a long time, but I think actually by next week's podcast, we're actually going to have some kind of news, you know, like I think there's going to be, I think these conversations have started and you can't take a break from these. If you want to start spring training in June, I think we're going to start learning things very quickly about baseball coming back, which hopefully is the case. I I, I hope so, Julian. I, I, you know, I have, been I think I haven't been complete I don't want to say completely upfront but listen anybody who works in baseball including me and uh, other people in television and you know there are people that without fans are not going to be able to get their job back you know concessionaires and security and all those folks but there are other people who work in baseball that need baseball back and I'm one of those people raising their hands. So I, I have a vested interest in seeing, you know, these guys um, return. And I do think they will come to an agreement. And as I stated earlier, I hope it doesn't play out uh, in an ugly fashion over the next several days. But you're right. It, whether it's next week or certainly within two weeks, when we gather for our podcast, we, we should have concrete news and hopefully very exciting news, right? Yeah. Very uplifting news. That's awesome. Also exciting is you've had a chance because of this break to catch up with some old friends. So after this break, you're going to catch up with Braves broadcaster Chip Carey, who comes from a fabulously talented family, by the way. We can kind of get into his, you know, Skip Carey's his dad and Harry Carey's his grandfather. And Harry Carey, obviously, is one of those uh, broadcasters, baseball broadcasters that is legendary. But first... We're going to have Marky tell you about Boyer's Coffee. Boyer's Coffee is back and wants to thank you, our Colorado community, for all the love and support over the years. And especially as Boyer's rebuilds their Denver roastery. Support Boyer's Coffee, the legendary Rocky Mountain roaster. Pick up a bag of freshly roasted coffee in your local grocery store. Julie, I'm not going to lie. I had to take a little sip of um, Boyer's Coffee before we started the podcast because I was getting the late afternoon nod-offs. (laughs) And so I had to take a little hit of of the Great Boyer's coffee. And see, now I have great energy again. I want to also tell you about our good friends. They've been with us since uh, day one. Ideal Home Loans. Give them a call, 303-867-7000, 303-867-7000. They've been lending locally for 20 years, basically. They started in 2001. Brent Ivinson 
is a terrific guy. He's put together a marvelous team. They listen. They listen carefully. And then they help design a great product for you. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They've uh, had ties to the Rockies for a number of years. They're really good at what they do. It's why they have been so successful, and they're locally owned and operated. Again, it's Brent Ivinson and his crew. And interest rates, as I'm sure you're aware, are at historic lows. So even amid this pandemic, it is a great time to save some money if you want to refinance, uh, if you have to consolidate debt. Uh, you would be foolish not to give them a call. Ideal Home Loans, 303-867-7000, 303-867-7000. And each week they bring us our interview of the week. And it was an opportunity, as Julie alluded to earlier, to catch up uh, with an old friend, a, a broadcasting colleague, a guy that uh, I originally first met when we were both doing the NBA, Chip Carey. He's a fascinating guy. You know, I was thinking about this today, Chip. Um you and I first met, and you probably won't remember this, and I don't remember the exact time, but you were doing the Orlando Magic, and I was doing the Denver Nuggets. So it was actually in basketball in the NBA that we first uh, came across one another. That sounds about right, Drew. I remember it well. I was sucking oxygen in old McNichols Arena, gasping for air <laughs> at altitude, just like our players when we come in there and get absolutely destroyed by the Nuggets. Uh, but yeah, we go back a long time, so I appreciate the introduction. The key word is old. We're both getting up there in years, but uh, it's great to hear your voice, and hopefully we'll be back uh, uh, in a spot where we'll see each other, perhaps in the playoffs, if they take place here in 2020. Well, they're going the way, you know, at least uh, what we read, they're going the way of uh, the NBA and the NHL. Uh, as I like to say, bring us, uh, you're tired, you're poor, you're 500 teams, everybody gets to the uh, party, which that's why baseball had always, you know, poured champagne and beer when you got in because it's really hard to do. I'm actually glad this year that they're experimenting uh, with many different things, and I think that's the right approach. Yeah, I agree. Uh, if ever there was a year, and with all uh, uh, apologies to the Houston asterisks, uh, this is this is going to be the year that uh, you know there's going to be a whole lot of asterisks. I mean, we've had World Series champions and strike years and all that kind of stuff, and whatever happens, assuming we play. Uh, there will be an incredible accomplishment, especially with what we're all going to have to probably go through. And I, I say that with deep respect and humility and empathy for uh, the much bigger picture, which is the coronavirus. But I'm with you, Drew. Uh, this is not a year to stand on your I'm a traditionalist perch or I'm a fan of the DH perch. This is a year uh, where I think Major League Baseball has a chance to really, really get it right and try things in, if you'll pardon the horrible comparison, a Petri dish of a live season. Uh, let's find out if we really need replay. Let's find out if we uh, need robot umpires. Let's find out if the DH is really a good idea. Let's find out if larger rosters are a good idea. Let's find out if a seven-inning doubleheader is something that makes a lot more sense. All of these things uh, should be, I believe, talked about. I'm sure they will be. My brain's far bigger than me. Uh, in a perfect world, we'd love to have uh, you know, 162 game season, and we'd love to have our uh, National League style of baseball, at least from my perspective. But this is the year that that's not going to happen. And I think uh, anybody who stands on that uh, that soapbox and screams loudly from it's going to be shouted down pretty quickly. And as I've said to other people, I, I believe that from Major League Baseball, Drew, this is a unique once in a generational opportunity to really, really market our game and make it as accessible and popular and hip and cool as it's ever been. Uh, with some creative thinking. Uh, it's not the ideal situation, but you know what? Sometimes out of a crisis, great opportunities arise, and I think this is certainly the one that's staring baseball in the face here in 2020. Yeah, you and I talked uh, a couple months ago, and, and I could not agree with you more, and I've kind of gotten on my soapbox about this uh, on this podcast, that it is an unbelievable opportunity amid a, a worldwide crisis to all of a sudden maybe reintroduce the game to some people and as you said, make it hipper, maybe maybe even change a couple of rules that you didn't touch on um, to make it more appealing to the younger generation who have a very short uh, attention span. So they have a they have a wonderful opportunity, especially if they can be the first major sport back out there, because look at, you know, the Jordan rules, not the Jordan rules, but the the last dance. Look at what that has. Uh, the number of people that, that tune into that on Sunday night, I like to say it's like 60 years ago when the Ed Sullivan show came on, everybody watched it. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's been fun to go back and watch all those players that you and I got to cover in that great era of the NBA. Obviously, 
with regards to baseball, the big issue, I think, is going to be one of the many big issues is access. Uh, because on one hand, we want to isolate everybody and make sure that we're limiting our individual contact with social distancing. But for baseball to do what we are proposing and what we would love to see from that standpoint, you're going to have to have more access. So uh, this is going to be basically a TV and radio sport and mostly TV. How are we going to get those sounds, those pictures into people's living rooms and onto the television set without getting in close contact with the players. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I'm sure that the people are talking about that and trying to come up with a formula for it. But make no mistake about it, at least in the early going, baseball is going to be a TV sport. And the more eyeballs we can get on TV, the more people that are drawn to it because they might hear Freddie Freeman say something or Nolan Arenado walk through in a bat against Clayton Kershaw, uh, I'm all for it. I'm sure the players would be for it as long as we can find a way to do it as safely as possible. That's not to say perfect. It's not going to be totally antiseptic. It can't be. Uh, but let's let's do it as smartly as we possibly can so that we don't have to worry about starting up and then shutting down because I think that would be obviously the worst, worst-case scenario. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that they have talked uh, quite a bit on Park Avenue about just that because pe- there are going to be some positive tests in there. And and they have to be able to sequester those folks, but not shut down the entire sport. I mean, Correct. Be- I mean, I, I think the Utah Jazz had two players, and I believe those are the only two players on their traveling party that came down with it. Thank God, if that's accurate. Um, yeah. You're right. If this many people involved, people are going to test positive. My understanding is that just because you test positive doesn't mean you're going to end up in the hospital on a ventilator or die. And again, that is not minimizing anything. But right. that's what we're going to have an injured list for. And that's why there's probably going to be a taxi squad and why there's going to be a bigger roster because of that. You have to prepare for that. You're going to have to have your minor league guys playing games, uh, taxi squad games, interleague games, uh, perhaps with other teams just to stay ready uh, because you can't have a, your pitcher at the major league level go on the disabled list with a, a tendonitis problem and then bring up a kid without any without any game action. So. Uh, look, as I said, there are bigger, bigger issues than just whether or not we get on the game, get on the air and do a baseball game. It's how we set this up so that it's as seamless as possible. And I'm sure, as you said, uh, Drew, that's what's being talked about at Park Avenue and has been for months. And I love the fact that so many of these different proposals have been floated. Um, you know, some I liked better than others, but at least people are exploring ideas to get the game back on the field. And considering where we were uh, when it got shut down in the middle of spring training, uh, talking about coming back is a hell of a lot more exciting and hopeful than talking about, well, we'll see in 2021. Yeah, and it's, and it's absolutely necessary, not just from our selfish standpoint, but it, it, I think it's necessary for the, the health of the country. And, and I mean that in quotations. In other words, people having an opportunity to go home and get a distraction from or when they can't leave their house, have a distraction from what has been, uh, you know, the most difficult time. Uh, for probably most people in their lifetime. I mean, when yeah, you could agree that. more. Yeah, yeah. I think baseball has a chance to be a real healing force. It always has been. It always will be. And uh, I keep hearing the term "new normal." Uh, whatever that new normal is, the key word is normal. Uh, we're an incredibly adaptable species. Those of us who work in our industry adapt every single day. We adapt game by game because you never see one that's exactly alike. Uh, I think people will adapt to this, and when we get back to the way things were to a certain degree, we'll look back and say, okay, what did we learn? What did we do that was good and bad? And let's adjust so that we're better prepared next time out. Because you're right, this is unprecedented. This hasn't happened in a hundred years here uh, in the U.S. to this extent, or, you know, maybe even going back to the previous administration, we had another strain of this flu, but was not nearly as virulent as this one. Um, but yeah, I, you know, um, we're, we're going to get through this. And with the help of baseball, I couldn't agree more. If we can get people's minds off of all that isn't going well, uh, I think that would be a good balm for a lot of people. You know, communities rally around sports teams. Uh, you know it in Colorado. You have such great fans in, in Denver and, and around the Rocky Mountain region. When that ballpark is filled or when the Rockies are playing great, man, people rally. People feel excited. It empowers them. And I think that uh, whether it's Atlanta or Chicago or Colorado or Toronto, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, Drew. I think people are starving for that kind of, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, civic single-mindedness. And uh, knowing our, our insignificant place in, in, in the bigger picture of things, we can still play a big role in, in making people feel good again, which would be a, a big help, I think. Yeah, well put. Well, your name, your last name has been woven into the fabric of baseball for more than, oh, man, it's, it's you'd know better than me, 60, 70, 70, 75 years. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is amazing. You know what I didn't realize? 
And, uh, you know, I got to meet your grandfather. Obviously, uh, I knew your dad. And uh, I didn't realize until I did a little bit of homework in preparation for chatting with you today that you're a third. Or if I if I did know that, yeah. I'd forgotten it. it. You're Harry Christopher Carey the third, right? Correct. Yeah. And I've got we have twin sons. And the first one who was born is Harry Christopher the fourth. Uh, yeah, um, I was, uh, I was, uh, born in 65. Uh, my dad wanted me to name, uh, be named after him and his dad. Uh, so yeah, now you know why I go by Chip. I, I don't, I don't think, uh, the name Harry is quite so hot anymore. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was a typical, uh, Chip off the old block. My dad got his nickname from his maternal grandfather. Uh, his last name was Coons in St. Louis. And uh, he was um, a jack of all trades. He was a barber. He was a saloon owner. And at the time of my dad's birth in the late 1930s, uh, he was actually a riverboat captain. And when uh, he came to meet his grandson, uh, he brought a little sailor's outfit to the hospital uh, where my dad was born. And they put him in the outfit. And uh, my, I guess my maternal great-great-grandfather said to uh, his uh, daughter and Harry and my dad, Look at that little skipper, and the name stuck. So that's how he was Skip, and that's how I'm Chip. And my son, uh, Harry Christopher the Fourth, goes by Chris. So huh. no nicknames for him. He's got the middle name. There you go. That, that's pretty wild. Let me ask you a question. And you've talked so you know frequently, and, and we're going to get into it a little bit with you with you you know the greatness of your granddad and your dad, and iconic figures in broadcasting, particularly baseball broadcasting. Has it been a source, naturally, I would think, of great pride, but is it a burden also? Was it a burden earlier in your career? No, I don't think burden's the right word. I, I think that, uh, you know, there are probably expectations that were levied upon me, and probably Joe Buck would say the same. Tommy Brenneman would probably say the same thing. Kenny Albert, Todd Callis. Uh, because, look, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and I, I say that with all humility. Look, my dad and my grandfather, uh, one's in the Hall of Fame, one should be. Uh, and we work in a business where uh, it's a personality-driven one. And finding your own way and finding out who you are as opposed to being a cheap imitation of other people who are not only in your family but in the same business, and in my case, in the same broadcast booth, was a bit of a challenge. But they encouraged me to be myself. And uh, that was the best advice I ever got, Drew, because uh, you're out in the West. I'm in the Southeast. How many people have you run into in your career that are in the business that sound or try to sound exactly like Vin Scully? There are probably thousands of would-be broadcasters who wanted to be just like Vince Scully. There's only one of him. Why not be the best you you can be? And um, I, that was, uh, you know, something I just tried to be, and and it's worked to, to, for the most part. Uh, but I never looked at it as a burden. I'm the first to admit that uh, my last name opened up a lot of doors, uh, you know, because people assumed that I was uh, sitting at the uh, knee of my father and grandfather in the broadcast booth, which wasn't the case. Uh, but make no mistake, uh, having my last name and having their support was a big, big help because of the contacts they made. And as you know, once you get the job, that's only the first step. The next one is to step through the door and keep it. Uh, because as we said, we, we're performers. We have to do a job, and we have to do it well enough because there are a lot of people who'd like to have it. And whether my last name is Kerry or Goodman or uh, uh, Fabarkowitz, uh, if I didn't do a good job, I wouldn't be sitting in the chair that I'm sitting in. So uh, the last name helped open doors, but it was up to me to walk through it. And uh, I walked through it and did so with my head high being who I am, not somebody's uh, son or grandson. The, the first piece of advice I know you have given, it's the first piece of advice I give when, when talking to aspiring broadcasters is be yourself. Totally. Yeah. You cannot try to be somebody else. Uh, now you're acting. And if you're acting, that's a tough thing to do every morning when you wake up. So um, that, that to me is, is the bottom line. And then develop your own you know, personality. It has to be within the confines of who you are when you're walking around in the afternoon as opposed to trying to. Yeah. Put when I went to Chicago, it was kind of difficult in this sense, you know, because I was following my grandfather. I, I never say I replaced Harry because nobody could replace him. I mean, those were unfillable shoes. And so much so that my dad, after. I'd been there a year or so. He said, do you realize, you know, what you what you're trying to accomplish there? And I looked at him, as I often do, with a blank stare. Um, he said, uh, there are probably only two people in the world that could have taken that job. And he said, I was one of them. And, and, and my dad said me. And I, as I thought about that, I, he was really, really right because he was such an iconic presence. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that I had that opportunity. I loved it. Um, but in Chicago, 
you know, I think people thought I was going to be a younger Harry Carey. Well, by the time my grandfather was in his latter years with the Cubs, he was already in the Hall of Fame. He was on his third marriage. His kids were grown up. He had grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Uh, you know, he was the Cub fan bud man. He had money in the bank. I mean, there was nothing more for him to accomplish other than watching the Cubs get to the World Series. When I got that job, I was 32 years old. I had a, uh, a six-month-old daughter. I was moving to a city and following a team that I had very little connection to because I grew up a Cardinal and Braves fan. And, again, stepping into a booth in a big city in the third biggest media market in the country, having no idea about the, you know, the Cubs and White Sox, uh, you know, hostile rivalry that took place and all the history of my grandfather and the people that, that loved him and hated him. And, and, and to a certain degree, I, I wore that, um, you know, wore that target. But luckily for me, I had some really unbelievably supportive people there. First and foremost, Steve Stone, my partner, who really took me under his wing. Arnie Harris, our late great producer of those broadcasts, who'd been around for Jack Brickhouse and Vince Lloyd and Lou Boudreau and was uh, a wonderful man. Uh, Andy McPhail, uh, Ed Lynch in the Cubs front office were incredibly supportive, the players themselves, and uh, John McDonough. Uh, who was uh, most recently the president of the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, he was the director of marketing, and I'd go sit in his office every day, and he just pumped me up and made me feel like I was doing everything they needed to do. And, uh, you know, when you have that kind of support, it's really hard to mess up. And knock on wood, I, I think uh, Steve and I did a hell of a job. We're great teammates and, and uh, uh, built a friendship that lasts to this day. Yeah, and, and, and Stoney's still going strong with the White Sox. Many people may not realize, Chip, or have forgotten that when you came from Seattle, you were doing broadcast work with the Mariners up there. When you were hired in 98 uh, with the Cubs, it was to work with your grandfather. And unfortunately, he passed away in February. Take us through that period of time and, and what your emotions were. Yeah, um, I, Drew, I, I was offered the Cubs radio job a couple of years earlier, and I was working in Orlando, and at full disclosure, I was making like $45,000 doing Magic Basketball, um, and they probably overpaid me. Um, but the Cubs wanted to hire me to come to Chicago and do radio, and I could, that's what they offered me. They said, we need you to be in Chicago, live here, and we're going to pay you, you know, not a whole lot of money. And I turned down the job. I couldn't do it because, as you said, I had the opportunity to do – the Mariners, and I was doing Fox Weekends uh, in the L.A. studio as well. And my grandfather didn't talk to me for about six months because of that. He couldn't understand why I wouldn't want to come to Chicago. And finally, I had to get my dad to intervene and say, hey, look, you know, it's a major market. If they want him, pay him. Give him an offer that he can survive on. Sure. And Harry, Harry continued to protest, and my dad said, and I'll, I'll always be grateful for this, he said, well, if you feel that strongly about it, why don't you pay the difference out of your own pocket? Well, it got real silent on the phone. Here's well, you know, he just doesn't understand, <laughs> you know, what Chicago's all about. Well, right. So, um, a few years passed. I went to Seattle. I was doing the Fox stuff, and uh, they decided that they wanted to hire me to do the TV games. And uh, they called me around Christmas of '97. I accepted the job, obviously. Uh, told the Magic that I would be finished at the end of that season in April. And I called my grandfather and I said, well, it's taken you 45 years or whatever the hell it is. I said, you finally got a partner. They offered me the job and I took it. And he was really excited. And I was too, because uh, it's not uh, a secret. I, I didn't know Harry particularly well. Uh, I, my parents and grandparents were both divorced and I, I, I didn't know him. I knew him from watching him on television. And I was really looking forward, Drew, to getting to know him as a person getting to know our family's history, what he remembered about that, and then being able to sit next to a living, walking, talking baseball encyclopedia. Uh, I mean, think about this. He saw every bat of Stan Musial's career. Uh, he saw train travel turn into transcontinental air travel. He saw Jackie Robinson play. Uh, you know, he, he did it all. He called, covered the World Series uh, with the networks and the like. And uh, from a personal standpoint, I wanted to know what was it like being an orphan in St. Louis? What was it like? Uh, you know, fighting for the Cardinals job and getting it. Um, those are all things in part of our family circle that never, ever got closed because he died on Valentine's Day in 98. And so when I was hired, the job was do all the road games, do the middle three innings at Wrigley, and do the pregame and postgame show uh, for the leadoff man. And all of a sudden I went from uh, being the, you know, I guess I'd say the, the heir in waiting uh, if I didn't screw it up, to being the guy because they hired me. And that was tough. I mean, it was it was awful on every respect. Losing a family member is extremely difficult. And as we've mentioned a couple of times, the professional side of it was was really, really tough. Do you do you have a p 
particular moment. I think everybody, especially if you're a baseball fan, has their favorite Harry Carey call or Harry Carey story that they may have heard and passed along. Do you have one or two that that stand out above the rest? I don't really have stories. I just I, I think what I what 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 carries, if you'll pardon the pun, um, my memories for him are are the following. One, his unbridled joy of being with the ballpark. Uh, with my grandfather, it was the, his report card of would, would have been three Bs: beers, babes, and baseball. Uh, that's, that's what that's what drove him. And any day, any time he was at the ballpark, that was the greatest day and the greatest moment of his life. That was what drove him. He loved the game. He loved being around the ballpark. He loved the excitement. He loved entertaining. Uh, he was the greatest beer salesman in the history of the sport. And he enjoyed the, you know, the fun and games of Bill Beck with the White Sox. Uh, he loved being at Wrigley Field and daytime baseball and singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Uh, that was who he was. He was an entertainer. He wasn't a particularly good father or husband or grandfather, but as an entertainer and a baseball broadcaster, he was, uh, you know, obviously one of the best of the best because he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I love hearing him scream. It might be, it could be, it is singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. I was one of that generation that came home from school and watched the, the silly old man with the glasses sing that at Wrigley Field. And I listened for all of his malaprops and talking about Marla Collins, the then Batgirl for the Cubs, that the weather was warm and he finally saw her without her pants on. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that today, you know, today's broadcasters wouldn't get away with. Um, but that's who he was. And to our point about being original and one of a kind, that was him warts and all. There was no filter. And um, fortunately, I think people responded to that unbridled joy and unbridled honesty that sometimes got him in trouble with front office people or players, but he didn't care. He was broadcasting the game for the fans. And so that would be another another lesson and really the summation of my Harry Carey stories because there's too many of them to mention. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you two brief ones. One one time I was watching you know the Cubs like like so many of us. They were on the Superstation on WGN and and um, your dad Valenzuela was on the mound for the Dodgers and it was a one run game. I want to say it was the sixth inning and the first guy up for the Cubs, whoever it was hit a fly ball to center field. And your granddad's call was basically lazy fly ball to center field. The Cubs will fall to 60 and 77 after the game. Stoney, that's all they ever hit is lazy fly balls. And I'm like, I'm thinking as I'm watching the game, I'm like, Harry's ringing them up in a one run game in the sixth inning. That's it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, how about, how about here's, Here's Paul Ossenmacher. Hadn't got anybody out in a week. Uh, he, had, he had a famous one with Kenny Boyer in St. Louis. Uh, uh, Harry would walk up to uh, Ken Boyer. And you, you get for fans who don't understand, we'd have to do pregame shows and pregame assignments. And we don't like asking the players any more than they like being asked. We know it's an intrusion. We know it gets them out of their routine. Um, but it is part of the job. And let's face it, TV and radio pays the freight. And when we ask, it's because we need you not to be a pain in the butt, right? Right. So, so here he goes up to Ken Boy. Hey, Kenny, how about joining me on the pregame show? And uh, uh, my grandfather, he said, Harry, you know, you know where you can stick that microphone. And Harry said, you know, Kenny, I can make you or break you with this thing. And Boyer fired an ex- expletive at my grandfather, and I'm not saying it wasn't unjustified. Justified. And off he went. Well, later in that game, uh, the Cardinals are rallying. They've got second and third, and Ken Boyer's up in a one-run game. Here's Kenny Boyer. Second and third, one out, three, two Dodgers, the pitch, strike, outside corner, 0 and one fastball. Boyer, three for four today with two RBIs, needs one more, side two over the outside corner. Come on, Kenny, second and third, Shannon's at third, Brock's at second, the pitch, silence. Jack will have the wrap-up right after this. <laughs> he had, yeah. again, he had that, he had that unfa- he broadcast the game like a fan which I think frustrated and upset some of the players. And, and I'm not saying they weren't right to be, but he didn't care. That's the way he did it. That's the way Bill Veck wanted him to do it. And, uh, um, you know, that, that carried over to the Cubs. And then in his later years, he slowed down quite a bit and became more of a genteel, grandfatherly guy because that was the that was the nature of the Cubs fans. It was a party. It was a garden. You know, hey, if we win, great. If we don't, we're the lovable losers. We're the Cubbies, blah, 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 blah. Right. Uh, but believe me, when the game was on the line, no matter his age, no matter his skill level, he was still one of the best in the business with the game on the line. 
Yeah, no, no question. There was one quick one. I was, uh, I think, I, I don't know what I was covering out in Los Angeles. It was before I was doing baseball on a regular basis, and uh, I called the Dodgers PR department. They got me a pass, and it was, it was the Cubs and Dodgers again. And um, so I, I, I happened to emerge from the press box at the same time that Harry left the press box, and you've seen this. I kid you not, folks. There was probably 30 to 40 kind of upper middle-aged women, if you want, and they all wanted their picture taken with Harry, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it wasn't always just upper middle-aged. I, I, had, I probably had dinner with my grandfather twice, and one of them was at his restaurant when I was interviewing for the Cubs job the first time, and uh, he's there, and he's, I, I was single, and these two – Absolutely rock star hot. I mean, they might have been Playboy Playmates. I don't know. They come over and they sit on his lap and they want pictures taken. And they've got the beautiful dresses on and they're getting their autographs and they're kissing him on the cheek. And I'm looking at my grandpa like, dude, I'm 55 years younger. Can you send one of them over here? Right. But that's but that's why. I mean, he was the ultimate chick maggot. And because they knew he was safe, obviously, but he, he was he was a party. He was a good time. He was an event is the yeah. way that I guess people today would talk about him. He was an event, and it didn't matter, uh, you know, whether Elvis Presley called him in Memphis to go have peanut butter and banana sandwiches or if he was hanging out at Dodger Stadium with uh, uh, Dean Martin's Gold Digger uh, backup singers, uh, and that's what they were called, Dean Martin's Gold Diggers. Uh, right. he, he just had an amazing ability for a guy that was an orphan. He had an amazing ability to attract people who loved him for what he was and what they thought he could be. Real quick, I'll tell you my favorite, Skip Carey, your dad's favorite, one of my favorite calls of all time. I, and he would do this quite frequently. He, he had such a, he, he had great wit and, and as you know, the, a sarcasm at times to, uh, his delivery and, and on TBS, they're always marrying everything to the movie that was coming up next. Right. And, and I, I don't remember what film it was, probably Gone with the Wind, right? And he's, and it was the bottom of the ninth. The Braves are winning, and there's a runner on first with one out. And he said, We'll be to, we'll get you to Gone with the Wind uh, as soon as we get a six four three double play. Next word was six four three. Enjoy Gone with the Wind. And then he went, ah, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. just follow the script. Yeah, he was uh, he was kind of the antithesis of Harry. Very sharp-witted, sharp-tongued when he had to be, but not not to the extent that my grandfather was. Uh, my dad liked to have fun. He liked to play. He, you know, he was as good a baseball announcer as there was. He's even better as a basketball announcer. And he got to Atlanta by following the old St. Louis Hawks uh, down to Atlanta. But, you know, he was, he was very much more reserved, but much more private. Uh, you know, he had a very tight circle of friends. He didn't want to be the life of the party. He wanted to do the game, go home and have a drink and unwind and then start, start again the next day. Um, and I think that was, uh, you know, again, for me, uh, an example of another way to be. You know, you learn a lot from your parents. What, what's good and what's bad? What to do, what not to do? And, uh, in the case of my grandfather and my dad, they both provided wonderful blueprints to, to follow, and uh, I've tried to take the best that they that they offered and avoid the worst. Well, Chip, it's it's different for you and me than ever before, and I'm not complaining. We are both so privileged and fortunate to do what we do, and I, and I again because I know you, we we absolutely adore uh, what we do, and can't wait to get back at it, but. In the days of certainly your granddad, who was an iconic figure, and, and your dad was an iconic figure, uh, there you have to be almost the hopeless homer these days to a in large measure. You cannot be critical uh, of of the home team if you want to stay probably employed over the long term. I think yeah, to a certain degree. I think as long as you're fair and you can back yeah. up what you're saying, uh, you know you're. Uh, our general manager at Fox South has said a phrase, and I've used it a lot, and it's really one of the best things I've ever heard. We're wedding photographers. Our job is to tell the story of that team on that day. We're not responsible if the marriage sticks together. We're not responsible if they win the lottery and disappear or any of that other stuff. Our job is to tell the story of that team. And some days, this, you know, some, sometimes the wedding party doesn't look so good. Sometimes the wedding party right. is like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. And as long as you represent that fairly and honestly – I think, by and large, most people don't have a problem with that. It's when it becomes personal that uh, most people get into trouble. 
Um, I, I firmly believe, Drew, that uh, today's young broadcasters have it much more difficult than we did. Uh, if we had come up in the era of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the social media and all the pressures and things that come along with that, I think it would be a lot more difficult for, for many of us to not only get hired but uh, continue in our jobs because these kids are expected to be perfect. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've used the line a million times. When the Magic hired me in 1989, they won 15 games, and I was worse than the team. <laughs> But, you know, they stuck with me. I don't know that a, I don't know that a, that a professional sports team or even a, a, you know, a minor league team would stick with someone and allow them to learn like we learned on the job. And that's unfortunate because I, I believe that you, you learn in this business more from your failures than your successes. Uh, you know, it's not hard saying ball two. What's hard is covering a team that loses 96 games and trying to make it informative and entertaining for people on a nightly basis so that they want to watch and to respect the people that are paying your check, i.e. the fans and your sponsors, by giving it 110% when, you know, you know and everybody else knows that the team's not going anywhere, but you still got to show up at the ballpark 155 times a year to uh, to sell the product. So uh, for the young guys that are coming up and the young gals that are coming up too, much respect. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard developing that thick skin and knowing that there are going to be people gunning for you through no fault of your own. And the, the guys and gals that can do that very well and succeed and continue to move up and have the courage of their convictions, I think, deserve an awful lot of respect because they're extremely talented people. Yeah, there's no, there's, there's very little question about that. I tell people all the time, you have to have a thicker skin now uh, than ever before. And you have to have an I don't give a shit factor because people from their basement are going to take shots. And most of those people uh, could not sit in your shoes and have never had to do anything uh, close to what you try to present uh, each and uh, every night. With uh, real quick, with you, with, with with your dad, you had the opportunity, fortunately, to to work with him. Was that the most special when you look back on your career? Is that is that you know some of the fondest memories for you? Yeah, I think so. Uh, again, going back to my grandfather's situation, where I didn't get to know him or close that family circle, that was one of the main reasons why I came from Chicago back to Atlanta. Uh, they were grooming me to uh, be his, I don't want to say replacement, but he, I was going to be the next generation on TDS. Uh, my dad was kind of winding down, didn't want to travel as much. His health wasn't very good, and I had no idea that TBS was going to go do the national package, and I wasn't ready for it and wasn't really all that enthused about it, to be honest with you. I, I want to do baseball every day. That's who and what I'm wired to be. But, you know, um, my parents were divorced. I saw my dad, uh, you know, two weekends a year or two weekends a year when the Braves would play the Cardinals and for a week and a half during visitation in Atlanta. Uh, I lived in St. Louis. He lived down there. And so for me as a 35, 40 year old man to be able to come home and, uh, you know, be my dad's son, have dinner with him, uh, have a drink with him on the plane, pick up his luggage, uh, take him to the airport, all that kind of stuff, pick up his medicine, his dry cleaning. Uh, and just talk about stuff, take him to the doctor, uh, things that I think most people take for granted. I never did that until I was an adult. And then uh, to have my own children and to see how great he was with my kids and how uh, how excited he was to meet his granddaughter, who's now 20, 22 years old, um, was, was um, um, you know, obviously life-changing. So, yeah, it was it was time in Chicago. I miss Wrigley. I miss the Cubs. I had a great time there, but I'm delighted that I'm where I am. And uh, I'm, I'm forever grateful that I had those four or five years with my dad that ordinarily I never would have. So from that standpoint, that that part of the family dynamic, that circle was able to be closed. And I'm very content and happy that uh, he knew that I loved him as his son. And I knew that he loved me as his kid and that he was very, very proud of who I was as much as what I was doing. Chip, three boys and your and your eldest, I believe, is your daughter. So, is there going to be a fourth generation of carries in the broadcast booth? We have my son Stephen and Christopher, both uh, in the journalism program at the University of Georgia. They're both into broadcasting. They're both going to try to uh, to make their way. Uh, my daughter's graduating from college. She's uh, she's not in broadcasting, but can sing and dance and act and all that stuff. So she's got the the performance gene. I'm hoping that my youngest son, who's 11, uh, is going to be the smart one and actually work bet between the white lines where the real money is. Right. Uh, so there's, there's still hope. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my kids, uh, not because of anything I've done, but because of what my beautiful wife, Susan, has done. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, the folks at home who keep the fires burning while we're gone and doing baseball games in Pittsburgh on the 4th of July uh, they're the folks who do the child rearing and the raising and act like mom and dad for six months out of the year. And 
it's really, really humbling to uh, see how irrelevant you are uh, when you're gone. But it's also so rewarding to know that you made a great choice in a, excuse me, in a spouse and a mate who can uh, who can fill in those gaps and nurture and love your kids and as well as your career while you're gone for so so long a period of time. So uh, I get a lot of credit for what I do. Um, but the, the real MVP in our family is my wife, Susan, and her parents uh, who kept it all together for me. So I'll be eternally grateful for them as long as I can keep doing it. Uh, they're the they're the people who've who've uh, made terrific people. And I just try to stay out of the way as much as possible. Well, you're 100 percent right uh, on that uh, last statement. And I said I've said this many times that uh, I, I love my broadcast crew. I know you have a great group uh, in Atlanta. Uh you, this is a literal statement, not a figurative one. During the six-plus months of the baseball season, you see your broadcast family more than you see your actual family. So, oh, without question. There, yeah, there, there has to be that steady one uh, at home. So you know, we've both been very fortunate in that regard. Hey, uh, Chip, I can't wait to see you where we're, uh, we're actually able to exchange stories uh, in, a, in a baseball stadium. It may not come this year. But it, uh, and I'm not alluding to no baseball this year. I'm alluding to probably our travels as broadcasters. We may be limited to doing the games on a monitor somewhere, but uh, uh, I can't wait till we get back to a degree of normalcy. I'm booking. I'm, I'm making a prediction right now. It's going to be a Rockies Braves World Series. How about that? That that would is that is that possible? I guess so. Yeah. Well, depending on what they come up with. Hey, listen, Atlanta, uh, I, I like the Rockies' 26-man roster going into the season, and, and I certainly like the Braves' you know, 26-man roster. This is now more than ever going to be about organizational depth, and the Braves have a great minor league system on paper. So, uh, you, you know, you guys figure to be in the mix. Yeah, we, we've – well, we, they – I mean, I don't work for the team, but yes uh, – uh, collectively, I think the Braves feel very, very good about their team. They feel very good, good about their chances when we start playing. Uh, they upgraded their bullpen, which is going to give them a huge leg up early in the season because starters aren't going to be going very deep into the game. So they have a deep, uh, untalented pen. As you mentioned, they've got that good system. They're going to score a lot of runs. And if they add the DH, that means uh, Camargo and Riley can switch off there. Nick Marcakis can DH, and they can play a very athletic outfield. So, look, there are a lot of good things happening in Atlanta. There are a lot of good things happening in Colorado. But the best thing that's happening is that we're talking about uh, baseball games being played. At least uh, at least there's a great chance of that. And uh, if you told me that six, seven weeks ago, I'd have said you're nuts. So let's, let's hope for the best, hope that the uh, players – uh, can find a way to make a deal with the owners and we can uh, start gearing up for a June spring training and real baseball right around the 4th of July. It'd have a beautiful symmetry to it, don't you think? Yep. Amen to those sentiments right there. Chip, it's always good catching up, man. Stay well. The best to your family. And I look forward to seeing you soon, brother. Okay, Drew, you stay safe. All the best and good luck to the Rockies when we get going. Okay, buddy? You got it. All right, man. See you soon. Of course, that interview brought to you by Ideal Home Loans. I the When I was producing for KOA... I got to go down to Mile High Stadium sometimes and Coors Field and get opposing players to put on the phone because I was producing a sports talk show. So I went down one time to try and get Harry Carey and Drew, he was, I just walked into the booth. He was so nice. Now he, he took my hand to kiss my hand because he's kind of old school. It was a little slobbery, but he took my hand. Was very kind, and I have a very nice memories of Harry Carey. He was exactly, exactly what you think he would be. Very genuine. Well, you heard the story I told on the air about when uh, I, w- I happened to be at Dodger Stadium. The Cubs were playing the Dodgers. I come out of the press box, and Harry comes out around the same time. And that literally, Julie, there were like forty blue hairs waiting to meet Harry. And you heard how Chip described his grandfather. He said the you know it's the three B the three Bs. He loved baseball. Uh, beer and broads, <laughs> and, and maybe not necessarily in that order. Here's one. Of, here's one of my favorites um, that I didn't get to discuss with Chip because there's so many great Harry Carey stories, and he was a terrific broadcaster. I think so many people o- always pay attention to the Mala props, especially as he got older when the Mets would play the Cubs, and, and when they had Daryl Strawberry, and um, they had. Keith Hernandez. I mean, he would mix up guys. You know, he'd call Daryl Raspberry and Keith Fernandez. They had Sid Fernandez and Keith Hernandez. He'd mix everything up. At the end of games sometimes, because it was always, I'm a 
Bud Man and a Cub fan, uh-huh. right? That, that was the toss to their post-game show, I believe. I'm a Bud Man and a Cub fan. Okay. Well, he'd mix them up. Sometimes it was like, I'm a Cub man and a Bud fan, which if you listen to him, you thought, yeah, I mean, he may be a bigger Bud <laughs> fan right now than anything else. He had that famous line where he turned to his partner, Steve Stone, his longtime partner, after a, 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 the center fielder lost a fly ball in the sun. He said, Stoney, how can a guy from the Dominican Republic lose a ball in the sun? Oh, my God. I yeah. mean, you kind of miss that, right? You, those kind, those. Well, he's one of a kind, but he was in a group of that. You know, like, like the Jack Bucks, the Vin Scullys, these amazing personalities. That yeah, and I I think when Hawk Harrelson recently retired, that was the last of the the truly old guard great characters. Well, there's a, there's a guy left, Mike Shannon, still doing radio in St. Louis, mm. and Mike Shannon's cut from the same cloth. I mean, Mike can virtually say anything he wants on Tuesday night, and he will be on the air on Wednesday night. And they are they are characters of the game. It's one of the things that I think makes not only the sport of baseball, but in particular the broadcasting of baseball, uh, beautiful and unique because there is this empty air that needs to be filled and the void sometimes is filled by uh, stories that you know you raise an eyebrow or, or the characters like the Harry Carries of the world were with stories where you just you start you know chuckling. Um, and it's not always as polished as you know some of the more modern broadcasters but it is part of baseball lore and i think people will be imitating harry carey for years and years and looking back at at some of his tape because he was a classic will you get us mike shannon on the podcast uh you know what we we might have to we're gonna have to work on that it's not that's not a bad call that's not a bad call. When baseball starts again. Yep. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. As you said, hopefully the next time we are uh, talking on this podcast, we have some more concrete news um, from the world of baseball. Anything exciting planned this week before we bid you adieu? Uh, no. I mean, a little bit of mountain biking. I mean, I, you know, like I don't know about you, but things are opening up. You're starting to get out there. No, not really. Same old thing. I don't know. It's fine. Everything's fine. I'm, Everything's great. I may do something. I may take one or two of the boys camping for the first time in in at least ten years. We used to go a little bit, fair amount when we were when the kids were really young. Mm-hmm. And where are you gonna now, go? Well, I don't know yet. The campsite's just opened up. I was thinking about maybe going up to like Horse Tooth. I've never camped up there. Um, yeah, I gotta buy. I gotta buy a new tent because the yeah. the old tent. I would think there's a lot of uh, mold and mildew in that, to say the Your least. Your boys are not going to want to be in a tent with you. I'm sorry. I just, I don't, I don't, do you think? Or they're going to be like, Dad, can we rent one of those RVs? Rent an RV. Yeah, we've done that too. I, real quick story, Julie, before we get out. So we went up to um, South Dakota to, to the you know Black Hills and went to um, Mount Rushmore, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we rented uh, an RV. And there's a highway up there and some people are going to chuckle who've been up there. It's called the Needles Highway. It's beautiful. And it's about one and a half lanes, Julie, right? It's two lanes, but it's really one and a half lanes. And right when you embark on it, it says if you have a higher profile on your vehicle than like, you know, 11 feet, you cannot drive on this road. And I knew that the profile on this RV was like a little over 12 feet, I think. Mm-hmm. but. I'm thinking, yeah, it can't be, you know, they're, they're fudging it a little bit because I'm a stubborn New Yorker. Julie, we drive, we, we wind around, scourges for like 13 miles. All of a sudden, we come up on this tunnel that is carved out of the stone. Yeah. And it's one, and it's truly one way. You got to wait for, you know, oncoming traffic to come through and then it's your turn and you go through. Julie, ain't no way. There's no way it was 11 feet or whatever. There's no way I could have driven under that thing. But as I said, this is like a one and a half lane deal. Uh-huh. I now have to back up 
to turn around. Did you say any bad so, words? What's that? Did you say any bad words at the time? I just can't. Oh, oh, my goodness. oh my goodness. I was so stressed. <laughs> and, and Chris gets out of the car. She tried, she like runs down this hill and, and people were so nice. They stop and wait. It literally took me, I'm not exaggerating. It took me like a half hour to back this damn thing up and get it going the other direction. Um, I was like in a sweat. I had used, um, I had used up like a decade's worth of vulgarity uh, in that half hour. Yeah, so that was my story. That was my story. Not believing that um, my 12-foot vehicle could not possibly pass under an 11-foot tunnel. Yeah. Well, uh, you learned a lesson there. I hope you guys go. If you do, I'm sure we'll have stories. Oh yeah, they'll 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 definitely be stories. Quick shout out! I want to I want to wish uh, congratulations to my to all the graduates out there. But uh, my oldest just graduated from the University of Colorado um, with flying colors, and I'm uh, I'm really proud of him. And uh, just celebrated his 22nd birthday. So uh, I love you, Jacob, and uh, congrats, brother. We're going to be working for Jacob one day. Drew, uh, next yeah, week. yeah, and I hope that that day may be come sooner than we than we think, right? Julie, you have a great week, and everybody out there, stay safe. Keep your spirits up. We'll talk to you again next week on the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Brown.